name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. So last week we spoke about the way to know God, okay? And that's by desiring to do His will, like when He said, He who wills to do my will, right? And then the actual way to know His will is by experiencing the Christian path, right? So we have to desire His will and to walk in that path, and then we start to experience the will of God and to experience His presence, and we come to know God that way. All right, so we went up until verse 17. All right, If anyone wills to do His will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it's from God or whether I speak on my own authority. All right, so we'll pick up from verse 18 and go from there. Right, but we'll just read from the prior couple of verses to look at it in context. All right? So he says, Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it's from God or whether I speak on my own authority. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Did not Moses give you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? All right. So, in verse 18, it says, He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Right, so, what does it mean for one to seek the glory of God? Right? Or, what does it mean to desire the glory of God? Okay. Perfect. So you're seeking the words of God, not your very own words, right? It's not from your own self or your own ego or your own pride. Okay. Okay, perfect, perfect. So you're not seeking your own glory, okay? The one who speaks from himself is speaking selfishly, right? And then the one who seeks the glory of God is speaking on behalf of God and seeks the glory of God, right? So when we speak from ourselves, it means that our thoughts originate from our own ego or our own pride. And that's why this is the person that seeks his own glory. Just He wants the praise or the flattery or the attention, right? And so what does that actually look like when we speak from ourself, right? What does it mean for one to speak from himself? What does it look like? Okay, you're bragging, right? Your intentions are to elevate your own image, right? You're even bending the truth, kind of like what Sayyidina was talking about a couple of days ago. And what you say may be truthful, but it's not the whole truth. So there's a part missing just to elevate your own image, right? Or maybe what I say is just for my own benefit, like it just fits my own agenda, right? And so that's what it means for someone to speak from himself, right? So... He who seeks the glory of God 
or he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true and no unrighteousness is in him. So first of all, who is this about? That's in John 7 verse 18. Who is this about? Who is he talking about? Who is the one who seeks the glory of the one who sent him? Who is the one who has no unrighteousness in him? Exactly. So he's talking about Christ, right? Christ is the one who seeks the glory of the one who sent him. And he is the one who is true and no unrighteousness is in him, right? So he's clearly alluding to himself, right? He's the only one that has no unrighteousness in him. So he embodies this principle of truth. He embodies what it means to seek the glory of God. All right? and, and that's why to seek the glory of God is associated with truth. Right? Because seeking the glory of God is to direct all praise and honor to God. Right? It's to always thank God. It's to always give God credit. Right? And a lot of times when we serve, whenever we succeed, or whenever we have any achievements, we may be tempted to just hide that or to bury that or to pretend like it was nothing, but it's not the healthy way to deal with it. Like the healthy way is to acknowledge the success and the achievements, but to accredit God with that success and the achievement. So it's to always give Him the honor, to say, yeah, this was good, like this worked. Um, maybe like after the retreat, people come and, and tell me and the servants or whoever planned for it, like this was great and it was wonderful. You did such an amazing job. And we say, yeah, that was wonderful. Like the, the retreat was amazing, but we give God the glory. Like he's the one that made it happen. He arranged all the pieces. Uh, he's the one that gave us the ability to plan and open the door for us to find this place and so on, right? So it's not to say, oh, it was nothing to pretend like the, the success was never there. Right? But we always have to accredit God. Right? So in a sense, you have to think of your life as an arrow. Right? Not like an arrow, like a bow and arrow, but like an arrow, you know, whenever you're driving and you have arrows that tell you like the exit is this way, it kind of points you in the right direction. Right? Yeah, so your life should embody that. Right? your life should exist like an arrow. And, and you're always pointing to God. You're always pointing to something, even if it's something that seems good, right? Uh, whether it's um, you're pointing at your own children and you're proud of them, or you're pointing at your own achievements in your career and you're proud of that. You're always pointing to something. You're maybe pointing at your personal success and your achievements or your health or your fitness, whatever it is, you're always going to direct people's focus to what really matters to you, right? And so what is it that we are always pointing to? Like that's the question we have to ask ourselves. Are we pointing to God and directing everyone's attention to God and all the praise to God, all the credit to God or to our own self or to our uh, own achievements, okay? Sometimes we do both, right? And, and that's what we have to ask ourselves because we should never direct 
any of the attention around us to the stuff here on earth, right? Even if it's something good like my job and, and my career or even my family, like my intentions are, are not to give my children praise, even though like, yes, um, I could be proud of my children, but God deserves all the glory, right? My intentions are not to elevate the achievements that help other people, right? It's not to bring people's focus to that. Right? We want everyone's focus to be on God, right? Even though we can acknowledge the good around us, but that's not the center of our focus, right? And so that's what he's saying. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of God, the glory of the one who sent him, is true, right? So Father Thomas Hopkins says something interesting. He says, human beings are created to offer doxa and evcharisteya, glory and gratitude or thankfulness. As Father Shmemen would say, we're created to be doxological and eucharistic. That's what it is to be a human being, to be a worshiping being. Okay? So, our life is intended to direct the focus of the world to God, not to anything else, right? N not to whatever exists around us, whether it's good or bad. Right? Obviously, we're not going to direct people's attention to the bad, but even the good stuff, we don't want people to focus on us and our achievements, but we want to focus on God. Yeah, does that make sense? Okay. So, in the next verse, he asks, Did not Moses give you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? Right, so what's he doing here in asking this question? What's he exposing? Okay, perfect. They're not following the law, right? And there's a deeper problem than just disobedience. Like, of course they're not obeying the law, but... What's the deeper issue here? They want to kill him. And what's their excuse for killing him? That he's not what? He's not following the law. So what is he telling them about the, their life? Like, clearly there's hypocrisy here. Right? So it's one thing for you to not follow the law, but it's another thing for you to criticize people that are not following the law when you're not following the law. Right? So he's exposing their hypocrisy. Because he's telling like, you're appealing to the law, like keeping the Sabbath and so on. You're appealing to that. And you're talking about how important that is. But you're not keeping the law. Okay? So notice that he's not really diminishing the necessity of keeping the law. Right? Or the significance of keeping the law. It's, it's necessary to keep the law. It's important to keep the law. Right? It's important to keep the law. But he says what's even more important than keeping the law is the humility to know the honest condition of your life. You know, the, the humility of your heart is more significant than your obedience to the law. 
Okay? So you should keep the law, right? He sh you should keep the law. And he's exposing their hypocrisy for not keeping the law, but then he's accusing them of breaking it because they're, number one, not following the law, and they're also criticizing him for breaking the law. Okay? And, and we know that even their accusations are invalid, right? Which <laughs> adds to their hypocrisy. Okay? All right, so clearly that convicts them. And it's nice to see how he addresses them with a, a, a very simple question, right? Because he could just, like, hit them over the head with their hypocrisy. And, and he can tell them, you're hypocritical, you're this, and he can just go straight at it, right? But he's just asking them a very simple question. Okay, so we're in John chapter 7, and we just uh, finished verse 19. Okay, so let's now go to verse 20, and we'll read until verse 24. Okay. So the people answered and said, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work, and you all marvel. Moses therefore gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. All right, so he criticizes them for their hypocrisy, and then he asks them, why do you seek to kill me? And of course, you know, they're going to get a little defensive because he's exposing their pride and, and their hypocrisy. So they say, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? And obviously they were planning on killing him. Like they're conspiring this whole time. And so their criticism is interesting because they accuse him of having a demon. And it's not to say that like you're crazy or that you're insane or that you are stupid. But it's to say that you're deceptive. Right? Because... It was common for sorcerers or magicians in that culture to, to work all of these different signs or wonders or tricks or any sort of deceptions. Okay, so to say that you're a demon in our culture is to just say you're stupid. They're not calling him stupid. They're saying like you're actually very crafty, you're witty, you're like a sorcerer, you're like a magician. Okay, because they're acknowledging that he's doing this work, right? And so, that at least, like, further validates that, like, nobody can question the works that he's doing, right? The only question is that, what you make of it. The only question is whether you consider these works as, like, valid works of God or the works of some sorcerer or some magician. Right? So it's not like they're trying to deny this stuff ever happened. Right? So that's important to, to recognize because a lot of people will come and tell you, you know, Jesus never did this, Jesus never did that. And we know that there was never a question about that. Even Jewish historians that 
didn't believe in him, never ignored what he did, right? They acknowledged that he did this stuff, but they just excused it or kind of ignored it by claiming it was deceptive or it was the work of Satan. They say, you cast out Satan by the power of Satan and all this stuff, right? And so they kind of ignored it, but they ignored it by pretending like it was from something else, not by ignoring it in the sense of saying it never happened, right? And so, what is this one work that he's referring to? Right? He says, I did one work and you all marvel. What is that one work that he's alluding to? I'll give you a little hint. It was what he did a couple of chapters earlier in chapter 5. What's the very last miracle that... Okay, what did he do? What was that miracle? It was on the Sabbath, right? Okay, perfect. So here's the paralytic man, okay? And this was a big deal. Like, it was significant enough for them to marvel, right? But don't think of it as like a marvel in the sense of admiration, like they didn't marvel like, wow, that's amazing, he's pretty cool, like, let's really admire what he's doing. It was more of like an astonishment, like they were shocked, right? So they didn't really admire him, but they marveled at it in the sense of like, this is just crazy, like I can't believe this happened, right? It doesn't mean that they admired him, like they were just shocked at what he did, okay? And so he even goes on to say that, this caused them to be infuriated. Right? So in verse 23, he says, Are you angry with me? Right? If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, so the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? And so that expression in the Greek is like a little bit more intense, not just anger, but they were infuriated. Uh, why? Because he did this miracle. So, as marvelous as it was, it caused the exact opposite of admiration, right? They were angered by it, okay? Okay. Yeah, yeah, because he broke the law according to them. They were very legalistic, right? And on top of that, they ignored their own hypocrisy. So, not only were they just stuck on the law, but... And at least, like, follow <laughs> what you're doing and then don't point fingers at someone else um, who's doing what you're doing, right? Okay, so does he really address their question whenever the people said, you have a demon, who is seeking to kill you? Because there's this little debate, right? He says, you're seeking to kill me. And they're like, who's seeking to kill you? <laughs> so... Did he go on to prove, like, yeah, like you were conspiring, people were saying this, you were talking? No, he doesn't even address that because that's just like a worthless tangent, right? Like, he goes straight to what matters. Like, he gets into the specific discussion about the Sabbath because that's the real issue at hand, right? So, 
What's that all about? What's the Sabbath all about? What's the purpose of the Sabbath? What's that? Dedicating the whole day to God. So what does that do for you? You're dedicating this whole day to God for what? Like, let's say, for example, you're dedicating a day to go to the gym. Okay, what's the purpose of dedicating this day to go to the gym? Okay, to get fit. Okay, so... Okay. Okay, very good. You're eliminating distractions. You are stepping away from your work. You're stepping away from all of the obligations. It's to liberate you from all of the stuff around you, to detach from the noise, to just rest. Okay, and that's why it's always considered the rest. Okay, the Sabbath is a day of rest. So you're dedicating this day to God and for yourself to rest. In a sense, it's the day of freedom. Okay, you can finally take a deep breath and enjoy the freedom of this day without any work. Okay, so listen to what St. Cyril says about this. Many sources in Scripture tell us that we should do no work on the Sabbath. We're to rest, as it were, and quit doing all those tasks that invite sweat and labor. It's written, if your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years, and in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. We, who were originally slaves to sin, had, after a fashion, sold ourselves to the devil by taking pleasure in evil. But now... Being justified in Christ through faith, we shall mount up to the true and holy keeping of the Sabbath, clothed with the liberty that comes through grace and glorified with the good things of God. Okay? So, the, the Sabbath is all about freedom. Okay? To the extent that on the seventh year, and this correlates to the seventh day, like it's the year of the Sabbath, just as the day of the week is... Yom Sept, which literally means seventh, Sabbath. The seventh year is also the year of the Sabbath, in which even the slave is liberated, right? So the slave is set free. So it's the day in which we are to liberate ourselves from sin, right? It's the day in which we just break those chains, okay? And that's what Christ came to do. He came to fulfill what was intended in the Sabbath, which was that liberty and that freedom that we were supposed to enjoy. Because we were bound by sin. You know, whenever you're just attached to a certain object or, you know, in the retreat, like every time I would walk by, I would see a couple of kids that were just stuck on their phones. I'm like, dude, you're a slave to your phone. (laughs) Like, there's no way you can leave your phone for two minutes, right? So even something good, adults too. (laughs) So even something good, like technology, can enslave us, right? But the intention of Christ's ministry was all about freedom, right? To liberate us from that. And that's what the Sabbath is all about, from the sins and the distractions and everything in between, okay? And so... How does this argument relate to the law of circumcision? 
Right? He's alluding to the Sabbath, like which is clearly this time of rest, this time of freedom. And then he goes to talk about circumcision. Moses therefore gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from, your, from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. Okay. What does circumcision have to do with any of this? What's the point he's making? Okay, very good. Right. Okay, so keeping the law is not always black and white. Right? There are gray zones, and some laws supersede others. Right? And that's just the nature of life. You know, life is not always about choosing between the right and wrong. Like you learn that as you grow up and you mature. You realize that's rarely the case. Like 99% of the decisions we make are not whether I should choose between the good and the bad. But there's usually like two decent options, two pretty good options. But we're trying to find what's better, right? Um, maybe to rest and relax for a little or to do a little bit of work, to do some chores or to spend a little bit of time in the service, right? It's not like I'm always choosing between reading my Bible or smoking crack. <laughs> like, we kind of dramatize it to think that, like, the decisions in life are always these extremes. And that's why we always struggle to make decisions, because the process is not that easy whenever you're choosing between comparable decisions. Okay? So... Craig Keener says, Jesus' argument runs like this. If the Sabbath could be superseded for excising a single member, which is circumcision, how much more for restoring the whole person? Okay? Which is what Christ did in healing the crippled man. Okay? And so this isn't a new idea. Right? Craig Keener goes on to say, that protecting life took precedence over the Sabbath was a long-standing Jewish tradition. Okay? Protecting life was always the priority. Okay? There was never a question about that. Right? And so these two laws, like keeping the Sabbath and protecting life, to the extent that even if your donkey falls into a well on the Sabbath, were you permitted to pull it out? I'm asking you. No, you could. Yeah. Because you're going to save it from dying. Right? And so they're now criticizing him for healing a real person, not an animal. Right? So the preservation of life always took precedence over the Sabbath or any of these simple guidelines or these rules. And they were significant. Again, Christ is not belittling the law. He's not belittling keeping the Sabbath. And that's really important to consider throughout this whole process because he never says, forget that, do this. Right? And um, a lot of people will, will say that whenever Christ is criticizing the, the scribes and the Pharisees in 
that lengthy rebuke in, in Matthew. He says, you're doing this, and you're doing this, and you're hypocrites, and all of that stuff, right? He, he never criticizes them for keeping the law. He says, these things you should have done without leaving the others undone, justice, mercy, and so on, right? Yeah. Back to the point about like, the people being enraged, I'm just confused because there's like a common theme too where like when Jesus cast out the demons from the, the guy and he put in the pigs and then the pigs like fell off. Okay. This village was like really mad at him. Like I don't, I don't understand how like Christ could be helping people and then these people will get angry. Like they won't even stop to think like, is this man different than us? Like should we even like evaluate what he's doing? Like what, what was holding these people back from just even like evaluating like what, what Christ is doing? I don't understand how they can be so quick to just anger and only think about it. That's a good question. Uh, so a big part of it is just because. He, he came for a different agenda, right? And, and that was almost offensive to them because their, their conception of freedom was liberty from the Romans, right? They, they wanted the Roman authorities to leave them alone, right? And they, they wanted to destroy th- that oppressive authority. Or Christ comes and he says, like, render unto Caesar that which belongs to Caesar. And he says, like, my kingdom is not of this world. He says stuff is, that's like a slap in the face of someone who's like, you know, he's in prison for uh, a crime he didn't commit. And you're coming to tell them, you know, I didn't come to destroy the person who threw you in prison. Right? And then you're telling them about a different oppressor that's worse than the Romans, which is sin. And so to them, that just didn't sit well. <laughs> and to us too, like a lot of people think, you know, what's Jesus going to do for me? Is he going to make me rich? Is he going to pay my bills? Like, what's going to church going to do for me? You know, uh, we were just talking about balancing work and and God and church service throughout the retreat and we spoke about Bill Gates for a moment how he says I just see no utility in going to Sundays like my time is worth much more spent in work right and clearly he's right (laughs) like that's why he's a billionaire right and so they saw no utility in putting their faith in Christ and that's why they were just offended by him. Does that make sense? Yeah. Any other comments or questions? And they didn't believe that he was the son of God. I think like that is the uh, well, I can't speak for all of them, but most of them were angered and upset by him just you know, did didn't believe that he was who he said he was. Right. Right. Yeah, of course. And, and that's why like, that, that faith is so critical. Once you believe and you trust in the identity of God, then what, what follows is manageable, right? Like whenever St. Paul meets Christ on the road, on the road to Damascus, um, and he's like blinded by this light, the first question he asks is like, who are you? And then he says, what must I do? 
So you're never going to follow or commit to him unless you really believe in his identity. Like, I need to know who you are. And to come to terms with that, I believe in that, and I trust that you are the Son of God, you are my Savior, my Creator, and, and then everything follows from that. Is that why he did the signs? Because like, if he would just walk around and say, of course. I'm the Son of God. Absolutely. So it just seems so illogical to me that he's doing these signs to prove to people that he's the Son of God, but then like, these people are like, oh no, you're like, wrong. But the signs are followed by a demand for faith, not followed by a promise for prosperity. <laughs> and, that's, and, and that's what troubles them. Right? I mean, that's the very core of the gospel. Like from the very beginning of the gospel of John, he goes into the temple and destroys their business, right? Flips the tables and drives all the money changers out. And he says, like, this is not what my house is for, right? And so he's calling them to a deeper life of faith. And, and we must sacrifice whatever gets in the way in order to commit to Christ. And that's why... Like, there's a demand for us to throw that out, right? Like in the end of Luke 9, whenever you see the three cases and people ask him, like, you know, I want to follow you. And he says, um, let me first tell my family goodbye. And he says, just forget about that. Follow me. And the other person he says, let me just go bury my father. He said, let the dead bury the dead. And he says, the other person, like, follow me and then he says you know he who puts his hand to the palm looking back is not fit for the kingdom of God like the demand for faith is always built on the sacrifice to say forget about your money forget about your needs forget about your business forget about your circumstances and even the oppression in your life forget about the Romans that are ruining your life forget about <laughs> your manager that's driving you crazy or all of your physical illnesses, whatever it may be, like, I got you. And so you need to just commit if you're going to really have a serious relationship with me. Okay? So, obviously, the real issue here is not just their legalistic application of the law. Right? It's their hypocrisy. It's one thing to follow the law in a legalistic way, but it's another thing to do that hypocritically. And that's what he's, he's exposing. God hates nothing more than our hypocrisy. Right? Um, and goes back to what we just spoke about when he um, rebukes the scribes and even the lawyers. He says, like, you're just hypocritical. Right? So he goes on to address their judgment. Right? What did he say in verse 24? 
that do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Okay, so are we supposed to judge or not? We are not. We are. We are not supposed to, but we are. Okay, so you're siding with both of them. <laughs> Um, what do you guys? We're not. Okay, we can judge actions, but not the people. Okay, so. Okay, only God can judge righteous. But who's he addressing here? Who's he telling to judge with righteous judgment? people, right? So here's a command to judge, right? So he's not saying you may judge. He says to judge with righteous judgment, right? And of course that's not to be confused with thou shall not judge, right? That you shouldn't judge your neighbor, right? Okay, so let's dig into this a little bit because this is one of the most important concepts in our spiritual life, okay? What does that look like to judge righteously? What makes a judgment righteous? Okay, if it has a good intention, very good. According to the Bible, according to the truth, okay, it's fair. Hmm. Okay. Okay. To try to see the world through his eyes, not through like a biased perspective. Okay. Very good. This is all good stuff. What else? So, Mina also mentioned one thing that we're not judging the people but the actions. Okay. So that's, that's essential, right? That's an essential distinction to make, right? Because a righteous judgment does not judge the person. A righteous judgment is based on an ideology or a certain behavior. Like, is it fair to say smoking is bad? Is that a judgment? Are you, are, like you're judging whether that's good or bad. You're making a judgment, right? It's a fact too. I mean, others could debate that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> and so, you're not judging a person by saying smoking is bad. Now, does that have implications? Yeah, well, you know, what if I smoke? Are you saying that I'm bad? <laughs> Exactly, right? Exactly. There you go. Perfect. And there's a common saying that we say, "Love the sinner, hate the sin," right? And we're all sinners, right? But judges' judgment is directed towards actions or ideologies rather than the person, and it has to be detached from the person to the extent that I can see someone caught red-handed in the most terrible sin 
and I can judge that sin and say that was wrong. But I, I don't have the slightest judgment towards that person. Of course. But like, it's easy whenever the sin is obvious, right? Like if I see someone murdering someone. And that's fine because it should be difficult, right? Because to some extent, we are defined by our actions. That, that, that helps, but at the end of the day, we're still going to see someone involved in, in a terrible sin, right? And that is important to try to look, look at those situations with a grain of salt, right? And, and to give excuses for people. But we have to call sin, sin. We have to call evil, evil, right? Um, you hear stuff in the news all the time, and you hear all the terrible things around you, and and you can't just walk through life pretending like the stuff doesn't exist, like you're, you're in your own fabricated utopia. <laughs> right? And so, Abba Dorothea says, you may well know about the sin, but you don't know about the repentance. That's important because that helps us to say, the person is not defined by their sins. Just as I am not entirely defined by my sins. I'm not defined by all the good and the bad that I do. It's n I'm not just a collection of like, all of these behaviors and say, okay, Abuna is all of this good and all this bad. No, there's more to my identity than that. Right? And, and, and that's why only God can judge us. Because only God knows our true identity. St. Paul says, I do not even judge myself. Because we have inclinations and desires, we have intentions that may even oppose what we do, right? So we don't know exactly what prompted someone to do what they did. We don't know whether tomorrow they will repent and become like St. Mary of Egypt or St. Moses the Black or any amazing saint, right? But we can say this was wrong, right? And so even when we judge behaviors or certain activities or uh, certain actions, it has to come with that reservation. So a righteous judgment is always reserved. Okay? It's always reserved. Because even when we look at certain behaviors, we know that some stuff is just not black and white. You know? If I hit someone, is that right or wrong? Well, what if I am a loving father that just gives my child a gentle little spank? <laughs> All our parents, ancestors, cultures, like, like there's nothing wrong with that, right? I, I see so many amazing parents that will discipline their children and, and people will say, oh, that's too tough, or the, but it's all out of love, and they all do that for the sake of educating their children and so on. Right? And that could be a controversial example. But the point is, there are some behaviors that 
Like you look at it and you say, oh, that's just wrong, right? But deep down, like, wait, it wasn't really wrong. It was warranted, right? It was the right thing to do because of the circumstances, right? Uh, and you could look at a lot of legalities like that too, right? Is jaywalking wrong? Yeah, but if someone is harassing you and running after you and you have to cross the street, like, <laughs> it's not going to be like, it's not a sin, right? Anyways, you get what I mean, right? Silly examples, but point is, a lot of times we see certain behaviors at face value, and we judge it to say, like, that's just right, that's just wrong, but we should know what's right is right and what's wrong is wrong, but when we look at certain behaviors, we have to always look at them with a grain of salt and, and have that certain reservation, okay? Otherwise, it's a judgment based on appearance, because we're just looking at the appearance, not looking at the circumstances, the intentions, and everything that goes into it, okay? Um, a righteous judgment is a judgment of love, right? It comes from love, right? It's a judgment that is driven by love. It's not a judgment driven by the intentions to condemn someone, right? So you remember that story whenever there's uh, this monk sleeping in midnight praises, right? And then the other monks see him always sleeping every night and they're like, this is terrible. Like, this monk is always asleep during the prayers. He should be standing and praising and stuff. So go to the elder, they tell him, like, you have to correct him, right? And then, like, you know, what do you want us to do so that we can fix this? He says, next time you see him sleeping, make sure that he's comfortable. Make sure that he, he, he's sitting in a good, comfortable position, or laying down, whatever. So <laughs> the intention of the elder was, like the way you should look at this person with love, not just with the intentions of condemning him, right? And so it goes back to actions and appearances. Is sleeping during prayer right or wrong? <laughs> Definitely wrong. <laughs> but who's to say this man wasn't serving all day long and wasn't exhausted, wasn't helping other people? Maybe he didn't get even 10 minutes of sleep in his cell. And he's going and he's exhausting himself to try to attend midnight praises as well. And then he's just dozing off during midnight praises because he's offering God all of his energy. As he says, you're just looking at the appearance. All you see is just a lazy monk, <laughs> but you don't know, right? But a righteous judgment is a judgment driven by love, right? And these people, uh, as the elder exposed, we're trying to just condemn this this monk, okay? So the church does have the authority to judge certain people, right? And the church can even identify certain people as heretics to condemn certain people, right? But even that is done by wisdom and even that is a product of like a very thorough process and there's an examination and there's like a trial, and then after this lengthy process, process, the church identifies this person as an individual with heretical teachings, and they're excommunicated. It doesn't just place that judgment haphazardly, and it doesn't just happen by a single person. It's like a council and the, the elders, elders and the leadership coming together. 
So you see, it's always a process of love and wisdom. Well, it's, it, it's to say you're excommunicated. The church can't excommunicate people. And it has done that in the past. And, but it's always after giving the person a chance. And maybe um, you, know, you can revise what you're teaching by you know, putting it this way. Maybe you can fix what you're saying. But if the person refuses and they're spreading heresies, then the church says you're a heretic. You're excommunicated. Right? St. Augustine says, Let us not judge then by appearance, but hold to sound judgment. Okay? Hold to sound judgment. But who is it who doesn't judge according to appearance? It's the one who loves all equally. When there's equal love for all, then we do not accept people on the basis of who they are. Right? Like their occupation, or their position, or any of their status quo, right? We're not judging people based on their appearance or their position or like the basis of their possessions or any of that, right? So that, ju- that righteous judgment is driven by fairness and equality. It's driven by love, right? We're not looking at the appearance, okay? The, anytime there's partiality, or a bias in our judgment, you know for a fact it's not a righteous judgment. If I'm willing to say the same exact thing about myself and my own family and the people I love, then you can say, okay, now I'm not biased. Right? But if there's an ounce of bias in it or partiality in it, it's definitely not a sound judgment or a righteous judgment. Okay? A righteous judgment's also driven by concern to protect myself, right? Or to just grow, like to have the intentions of personally growing. So I'm trying to judge a certain behavior so I can learn whether this is appropriate or not, right? Like your child comes and asks you, mom, is this right or wrong? You judge so that you can discern whether this behavior is appropriate for you to do or not, right? So it's always applied to identifying the right path as a Christian. So you come and say like, no, Habibi, this is not the right way to go. Like we don't, we don't do that. We don't talk like that. We don't listen to that music, right? So you're making a righteous judgment in a sense of identifying what's appropriate for the Christian path. Your intentions are to grow. Your intentions are to protect yourself. So you're maybe condemning a certain behavior, not just to rebuke the person, Right? Not just to criticize that person, but your intentions are to protect yourself and to identify what's right and wrong for your own sake. Does that make sense? Okay. And a righteous judgment always proceeds from a place of humility. What does that mean? That a righteous judgment always proceeds from a place of humility. Okay, to recognize that I'm not God, right? To recognize that my judgment is not infallible, right? So that's important. It also comes from a place of recognizing, like, my own condition. So I can only look at my environment and the people around me or the behavior around me or all of that stuff after I've looked at my own life 
and what I'm doing. So I have no business thinking about like what other people are doing when I haven't even looked at myself, right? So that's, that's important. That's why without humility, then every judgment that I make is a condemnation. Every judgment I make is not a product of love. Right? Every judgment I make is just to rebuke someone because I'm not even conscious of what I'm doing in my life. Okay, so whether I'm you know, looking at what people are doing with a grain of salt or not, like I'm always gonna fall into rebuking or condemning people if I'm not conscious of my own sinfulness, I'm not conscious of my own weaknesses and so on. Okay? Thomas Kempis says, in judging others, we expend our energy at no purpose. In judging others, we expend our energy to no purpose. We're often mistaken and easily sin, but if we judge ourselves, our labor is always to our profit. Our judgment is frequently influenced by our personal feelings, and it's very easy to fall in right judgment when we're inspired by private motives. Okay? So if we judge righteously, we're conscious of our own sinfulness first. Okay? Um, and then finally, I, I, I will say that it's always driven by wisdom, right? Because sometimes we have to keep a certain judgment to ourselves. Sometimes it's important to communicate our judgment, whether it's like silent or private or, or public as well, right? Sometimes I'm in a position to publicize what the church believes about a certain behavior, right? And I have to say, like, as a priest, this is wrong, this is right. Like, and to, to discern in that way and to do that publicly, right? And that does have implications on people that are walking down that path, but that's irrelevant, right? And, and, and that's not the intentions of making those, those judgments, right? But it's always a product of, of discernment and, and the context and a person's position, the proper time and place and circumstances and all that stuff. Okay, so we are just at our end. I'll leave you with a beautiful story that kind of puts this all together. Okay, you remember there was a monk who was messing around in his cell, right? And uh, this is a story whenever uh, a, a lady was, would sneak into his cell and people would see her going off into his cell and they knew that you know, he was inside alone with this lady. So they knew what was going on, right? And they go and get the elder, and in this case, the elder is St. Macarius, okay? And, you know, he pretty much has a good idea of what's going on. So he says, all right, let's go and, and see. And as soon as um, they arrive at this monk's cell, he says, let me just walk in and take a look at the place, then I want you to just follow and um, search the whole place and let's try to find her and see what's going on. So he goes in and you know, he takes a seat on top of this big pot, which is flipped upside down. Right, so like the opening of the pot is at the bottom and he's sitting on the base that's face up. So he's sitting there, he invites the rest of the monks in and um, 
He tells him, I want you to search the place. He said, there's a woman here. Like, tell me where she is. So they search everywhere. You know, obviously, like, there's this elephant in the room. Everybody knows, but nobody's going to tell the great Abba Makarios to get up so they could look under where he's sitting. <laughs> and so after looking for a few minutes, they're like, we can't find her. He's like, well, I guess if you can't find her, there's... There's nothing to say, you know, we, there's no way to accuse this monk of a crime that we can't prove. So, you haven't found anything, I guess you have to go. So, he sends them out, and then after he sends them out, he looks at the monk and he tells him, sin no more. And then he walks away. So, the beauty of this story, I mean, you, we can learn so much from this. But for starters, what was his primary objective? To protect him. Not to embarrass him. To cover his sins, to cover his shame. That's always our priority. Right? Now, this is also unique to St. Macarius because he's an elder. He's the abbot of the monastery. So he's in a position to admonish. Right? And so, he protected him, but... Did he excuse his mistake? Did he walk away and pretend like this monk is fine? No. He, exactly. He convicted him. Right? And so, did St. Macarius acknowledge this man's sin? Like, did this man really know that St. Macarius was aware? Of course. So, St. Macarius made it clear, I, I know, right? Like, he, he, he judged in his heart that what this monk is doing is wrong, right? And that's why he said, sin no more. So clearly, you're walking in sin, right? And so, here is that righteous judgment. But he communicated it with so much love and protected him, prevented the other monks from judging him as well protected them from falling into sin, right? So there's just so much wisdom in this whole story to see how, depending on the circumstances, the right place, the right time, whenever it's driven by love, that we can always pursue the truth, right? To live righteously, to live in purity, and to help others to do that, right? So it's a beautiful story for us um, to keep that in mind, and we pray that we do not judge according to appearance, but that we judge with righteous judgment. Any comments or questions? All right, and glory be to God forever. Amen.